Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald from the Informed Performance Podcast. In this episode, I chat to Daniel Martinez, the Head Strength and Conditioning Coach and Sports Performance Coordinator from Trinity University. In this episode with Daniel, we discuss jumping performance, velocity training, strength diagnostics and more. And if you're using force plates or considering implementing any tools like that to inform your strength and performance diagnostics, then this is definitely an episode for you. Daniel provides a very technical but richly philosophical perspective on everything we discuss and the depth of his expertise and experience is going to be very clear. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the conversation between myself and Daniel Martinez. Hi Daniel, good to get you on the show mate. Thanks for giving up some time and coming on. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. I'm always excited to, to have some dialogue and do anything that helps move our field forward. Um, just to kick us off, could you give us some context about who you are, what you do, and a little bit about your background? Yeah, um, I'm a strength conditioning coach uh, professionally and have a background in a pretty wide variety of different uh, different environments, uh, including the collegiate environment currently. I'm, I'm the head strength conditioning coach at Trinity University, which is in uh, San Antonio, Texas. We're a small liberal arts school, uh, about 2,500 students in total, 25% of which is uh, our student athletes. We have a pretty large athletic program based on the, the university size. Uh, previous to that, I was a consultant with Forstex for a couple years, uh, working with Dr. Cohen and Dr. Philip Grimsmith, like in the early stages of the integration into the US. Uh, under what's now Valid Performance, but uh, and then prior to that, I was a private coach, facility owner, and uh, 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 yeah, private coach and facility owner, principally. Like I, I ran a, a volleyball and basketball facility where we had an active club volleyball program and a, a training program that kind of went hand in hand with that. So experience kind of across the board from a, a youth athlete uh, all the way up to professional athletes. Cool. And um, what kind of athletes are you working with now? Or what sports? We're NCAA Division Three, so it's actually the lowest of NCAA in terms of like I think competitive orientation. Uh, something I'm pretty passionate about is like for this this environment, what providing like quality support actually means is uh, is first understanding that orientation is that we are like a, a very heavy academic uh, 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 university. Uh, but with that said, like, I definitely believe in optimizing performance here as I would anywhere. I think that that's part of what has helped my career is just looking at an 11 year old kid and an 18 year old kid and a 25 year old adult and just being willing to just look to get the absolute best out of them. So, uh, that's where I'm at currently. Uh, I still do some active consulting. I, I have a couple of NBA teams that I've kind of, I've, I've maintained a consultancy with, uh, but that's all, uh, a, a little bit more hands off, uh, from a from more like a data analysis standpoint was specifically related to my force text experience and force platforms that's pretty cool and um from conversations with our mutual friend ben ashworth and reading some of your articles online uh, gonna dive in a little bit i'm aware you've you've got a keen interest in uh in jumping base sports and jumping um which obviously your mba work's probably gonna um insinuate um where did that specific interest come from or develop yeah, it's interesting. So the way I, I always kind of characterize this for people is that I, I was a coach prior to, to getting deeply into force plates. And I basically just like worked with the tools that were available to me. So early on, like my coach's eye and focus on developing quality jumpers in the absence of any tools like that, like I just really learned how to do it really well. And then when I went to contact mats, it, it added another layer to things where I started breaking down those types of jumps a little more specifically. Uh, 
and then that moved me into force plates. And so before it was like, you know, I was doing videos and I was looking at contact times based on a, a, like a basic app, like which is coincidentally called Coach's Eye uh, and, and just kind of using my eyes as the filter. And that seemed to be something that really helped me to create a real uh, uh, foundation for everything. There's some specific loading strategy that I felt really passionately about that since is like added layers to it and what uh, there's uh, an interesting paper I, re I read recently that would characterize it pretty well that just basically said there's no such thing as redundancy and it describes instead it's more of a motor learning abundancy. It's just that there's multiple pathways that can bring us to a desired outcome and that's of course what we see in the force platform literature and for me I'm, I'm like whenever someone wants to look at data like that first and they haven't considered you know what that's like to coach those characteristics like that's something that I feel like my perspective really helped a lot of people with and that's probably what helped helped me help other people so that's uh that is certainly something that uh I think when you have the discipline to coach youth athletes as I described before in that way then you learn a hell of a lot and then what happens when you deal with more capable athletes which of course I've had experience with now uh you realize that like what might have been a six-week phase of learning could actually be one workout that they just make corrections so much faster. And one of the big learning things for me was that there were, you know, I, I dealt with 11, 12, 13 year old kids that could become absolute savages in some of these movements. And the only thing that was being delayed was the actual output outputs, uh, like actual jump heights, right? Because that kind of stuff does, it's more of a long-term, uh, uh, process. But the balance inherent in that kind of system in vertical jumps, it's, it's, a, it's a really great stress test, I think, for, uh, for training adaptation as a whole, because what we tend to be biased in strength and conditioning towards is, is strength tests, right, obviously. And then, yeah, hey, our squat went up, but of course our squat was supposed to go up. But seeing how that relates to movements that occur across the spectrum, like that's, that's, that's something that I've always been sensitive to, and that's just been highlighted in the work that I've done with uh, jumping athletes. And have you found, you know, as you, you've gone from coaching and then you've used technology to become more sophisticated at how you, um, you know, appraise a jump, have you found you're able to get quicker changes or quicker results from the information that you get with that technology? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, like I, I feel it, it, it's pretty challenging. Like I think the consultancy with Forstex certainly like brought where I've never been bold to just act as if like what my experience is and what my perception is, is what everybody's experience and perception is. So I've always tried to be, find the balance in asking people challenging questions as well as just being passionate about what I believe as a coach and practitioner. Um, and uh, I, like, I, I think that that, that, that cross section of experiences is what really like it's, it's, yeah, it's made some of the things like for, for me, like I said, as a coach, like I, I have certain firm beliefs that I've continued to advocate for and, and kind of critique some of the some of the current uh, practices, I think is probably the uh, the way of putting it just kind of in a, in a general bucket of, of, of people just kind of taking our athletes tests for what they are and not and then you know like kind of basically i'm describing the jump naturally phenomenon like people having jump strategies and they're not having been a technical model in place from the practitioners and then just assuming that that's that's a best effort for that athlete because they're elite you know like we know that that we practitioners know that really really well that like because they're elite in their sport doesn't mean they're elite in their training but it seems the lag in the jump testing that people just excuse that of saying like, well, they're, they're still an explosive athlete. There's, therefore, this is a good measure of their explosiveness. And that's just 
Uh, I've seen very little of that. I've seen I've, I've seen a lot of, of data that I would say is like uh, what I always describe as the easy wrong versus the hard right of being like, yeah, well, uh, they did the vertical jump test, but is this a good representation of what their explosiveness truly is capable of? And then I think the critique from practitioners on the other side is to say, well, yeah, but, you know, jumping with your hands on your hips on a force plate is not the same thing as jumping in their sport. So the way that I've described it recently is 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 relating to Bruce Lee. And I always tell people it's like Bruce Lee's one inch punch. It's about learning to do more with less. Right. To scale it back and still be able to get some insight into what they're capable of. And when they're not able to do that, it's not the whole story but it's giving you some element of the truth in what they can give you about uh, about what their their capabilities are, whether they they can engage that effort truly, whether they have an understanding of what it takes to, to, to generate and express explosive movement in that way, or whether it's going to take some work to have that be a better marker of what their explosiveness is. Yeah, and I guess you have to, if, to, to be able to compare athletes, especially if like a jump, you need to be able to standardize certain aspects. So if you can standardize hand position, I guess you can take out some of the noise that might give you variability that doesn't give you insight. Yeah, absolutely. Like that's there's there's basically two camps of this, right? It's just like people wanting it to be closer to what's being more natural while saying, oh, well, let's use let them use their arms. And my big critique is that I don't think that people coach arms in jumps very well. And if you do coach arms, then you'd understand that some of these positions there, there, there's an alignment from a congruency standpoint that when you add the, the arm action to a good counter movement jump, you can represent balance, you can represent speed and explosiveness, and you can you can truly create an accentuated eccentric pattern on a vertical jump. That means that when they say that you'll get, you know, 10 to 20 percent increase based on the the addition of the arms to a vertical jump that you okay well is it 10 or is it 20 right like i know that if we do a better job of doing that well it'll consistently be closer to 20 percent uh, augmentation where in the absence of that someone who should be getting that addition and they don't tells me something about whether those positions are integral or not and I guess it comes back to exactly what within the jump are you specifically measuring rather than just a global jump as a whole. Yeah, that's absolutely right. There's a, a practitioner from the St. Louis Blues who, who it's it's the best way that I heard it uh, characterized. His name's Eric Renahan, just won a Stanley Cup championship, which is definitely not a mistake. Uh, but in Eric's case, he, he described it the first time I heard it described this clearly was he called it a force time asymmetry. So we're aware of limb asymmetries, but when we think of it from saying, is somebody more oriented toward force in that task or more towards time? And then what we want to see is that we can we can develop a sensitivity to somebody who's more force dominant in that pattern that, hey, can we can we do the same thing faster? Right. Like the classic example we used in a, a, a bit of a case study anecdotal piece with force decks was. We compared an Olympic weightlifter, a very successful Olympic weightlifter who actually competed at the Olympics, and a professional soccer player, professional uh, football player internationally. And their characteristics, it's what Dr. Uh, William Sands always called characteristic but idiosyncratic, their their jump pattern was was completely different, right? One of them was slower eccentrically and was really taking time to develop big forces and, and much deeper knee angles and uh, – uh, and was truly explosive more on the concentric phase, right? Where from start to finish, the soccer player was an overall faster jumper. So not as low, but the contraction time was way lower. And that changed some characteristics to where they were 
they were way bigger. So you can look at that in a couple of different ways of saying, well, yeah, for the soccer athlete, time is the critical factor. But from a training adaptation, if we want to use that as a, as a real marker of readiness, then we need to see that that reflects characteristics either in the weight room uh, for how that would be affected with fitness and fatigue or as a measure of fatigue, uh, which would be more of the monitoring piece. But sometimes you're going to have one and not the other. And from my, my perspective, what I'm trying to move towards is trying to get it to where I can get both. Right. Uh, so one of the critiques that you could have for that is to say, well, if we were to exert an influence from a training standpoint, what, who, who would be ready to adapt faster, the Olympic weightlifter or the soccer athlete? For the soccer athlete to improve that jump output in that case where they're just a fast jumper, didn't jump as high, but overall we could call it an explosive effort, would it be easier to put them in better positions, meaning generally a little bit more of a counter movement, so a little bit more depth, not quite as fast of a jump, but let's say 90% of the speed, but 100% uh, or maybe even 110% greater forces present, right? So a little bit slower, better positions, more congruency from the trunk, hip, knees, and ankles, representing an overall global output that lines up with, like I said, what, what basically happens if you add arms to, to the positions. Uh, is that athlete going to adapt to that coordination change faster, or could we put a weightlift? on a plyometric block and have him learn to actually do that pattern much faster, right? Like from my perspective, the Olympic, Olympic weightlifter has, has more of a window of trainability for those characteristics in that I think that, yeah, in a three to six week timeline, he could change that really successfully, where for the soccer athlete in this example, it could actually take more time to make some of those coordination changes because they have to be learned to not only change the positions, but how to be strong in those new positions, which, like I said, their strength and conditioning support may not have necessitated that yet, which is a pretty good uh, example, I think, of, of, of where we've been a little bit short with uh, developing soccer football players internationally. Yeah. And uh, maybe a little bit open ended, but what, what's like the kind of approach that you take or what's your strategy if an athlete comes to you and wants to improve their vertical jump height I'm, I'm just curious to how you kind of deconstruct the the whole process for that yeah so most of the time like like i was saying before about the the one inch punch with the counter movement jump is is that's pretty much like my initial test for someone and then uh in general right like we have an overall like intake that we want to look at a lot of different characteristics some of which are way off of this this map in terms of being more about vulnerability and more about creating more alignment in, in their character as an athlete early on, especially in the collegiate environment. Uh, but specific to what we're talking about here, in general, I'm, I'm, I'm used to seeing poor positions used, uh, or I'm used to seeing people, if they are using good positions, they don't understand how to really use a gas pedal in doing so. So uh, in, uh, I'm trying to think of how to not like put this into too too broad a strokes because it can it can be really different. So in general, we'll look and break down their jump strategy. Uh, you can use some superficial metrics. Jump height is a pretty good surrogate for mechanical power, maximum mechanical power. Uh, and then RSI mod is generally like a, a, a good capture for for the explosiveness of the effort. The, the important thing about RSI mod is it only works if they check the jump height box, especially relevant to that athletic population. So for instance, like I was talking about before, the force time asymmetry piece, if somebody has a big RSI mod and a low, lower on average jump height, it means that they have that time bias 
and that from start to finish of their jump, they jumped really fast, but they're not showing you the positions necessary to actually create a big jump hike from that. Therefore, they need better positions. That's that's just like I just find out like I, I, I've never seen someone train for jump height in that in that scenario and be successful because they're limited in the positions that they're using. You'd have to use some pretty intensive plyometrics to make a change from those limited positions when they have that time bias. Because what you're basically seeing, if we're talking about a counter movement jump, I always call it, it's a relic of the drop jump, which means that when they're testing the drop jump, they're giving you a drop jump. When they're testing the counter movement jump, they're giving you a drop jump. So you can see how that redundancy in that specific pattern could, could, could create problems for them from a resiliency standpoint and from a position standpoint, because there's not enough variability in that system from a stress standpoint to where they're going to show you the capability to use muscles and tendons either more or less independently, as well as, uh, as well as in a more coordinated fashion across different ranges of motion. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, completely. Um, kind of similarly, do you use any diagnostics or, um, or tools and interventions to, you know, minimize injury risk? Do you look at the jump also as a, as a, a way to program and reduce injury risk rather than just for the performance? I know they're a little bit intertwined. Yeah, it's challenging. It's, it really is. Uh, I've had this conversation several times because people get really worked up about the limb asymmetry piece on uh, a counter jump test because it's been shown to be re- relatively task specific, right? We, we can see that, that, and then some of the tests are like, I, I mentioned, uh, 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 I've talked with, with Bill Knowles and Bill Knowles is someone who is brilliant and is really critical. I think of some of the, like what I would call the hygienic approach of, of classic rehab of just being like, it, it's, it, it is, it's very clean, but it's very far removed from the actual performance demands needed uh, that really tell us whether someone's rehab return to play or even just their fitness is up to par from a, from a, 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 a performance of readiness standpoint. Uh, so it's, it's, it's definitely, I, th- I think it's challenging, but like for me, it's, it's about building a case. So something that I learned from uh, Jason Weber from uh, the Fremantle Dockers was he always described it that way to me was was uh, like if you would take this case to trial, right? Would you go to your head sport coach? Would you go to your sports medicine lead? Like, would you go to one of those and say, hey, you know, their asymmetry is really off on this counter moon jump, knowing that for some athletes, jumping is not necessarily specific to what they do. My my thing is, and this this goes as far as like to a swimming population, which I hear similar stuff from them where they're like, well, you know, uh, they're in the pool. That's really their dominant setup. So is it really important that they have like, you know, how that the, their, their, their jump test. And I'm like, well, we do dry land training, right? So like if we do dry land training, then we should be good at it. Right. And if we're going to train in a weight room environment or in whatever the environment is, then we need some sort of capture that gives us some of these characteristics, but we need it to be a spectrum. So basically you need to build a case around multiple tests some of which that can be more hygienic, but we also need to be doing a better job of having tests that bridge the gap. Uh, A good good recent papers from Matt Taberner, formerly of Everton, uh, who I I presented with at a clinic in in Dallas uh, this past summer about the the control chaos continuum, right? Like like being able to 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 have a, a, a continuum that allows you to attack those characteristics as they move closer towards the chaos of sport and what I've characterized a lot uh, 
as a like kind of a zoo tiger jungle tiger phenomenon some of the tests that we do is it's like we're dealing with an athlete in the zoo right it's so far removed from the competitive environment that it can't be considered to be the same thing like i'm like if you do this on a soccer field does it look like soccer if you do this on a volleyball court does it look like volleyball something like that where other tests we would want to be closer to it uh, it doesn't always have to be the case but i think that there should be uh, a continuum at play that 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 allows us to have uh, markers that 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 demonstrate that progression for readiness yeah and going back to your point about swimming actually i guess um you know whether you're a field sport athlete a pool athlete whatever the kind of the the nature and demand of your sport is having tests that give you some output an identification of control you know the body the the human body is the common currency so regardless of setting the tests apply because the body is the body in all those sports however it moves 100 percent, and that uh, like I, I think that that's that's the thing is that there's very few things that uh, for, for me gravity is like the dominant characteristic for what we're tasked with like when if i'm involved in the conversation i'm almost always like it's like of course there's a weight training influence uh, and we can be really zoomed in on that or we could zoom out on that. But the, the bottom line is that whatever the degree is in your environment is that you should be optimizing what that environment represents. And I think that zoomed way out from the physio end, we know that some of the motor control uh, capabilities of athletes in this day and age are way, way limited. So some of the stuff that we have to be able to do is like, yeah, because we see these limb asymmetries doesn't mean that like it's like, oh, you know, they've got a a 50% asymmetry in their left leg. Oh, we'll jump off your right leg more. Or let's say if they're, if it's a time asymmetry, oh, well, you know, you, you did that jump, you did really well, but it was a little bit slow. So just go faster, right? Well, there's a really narrow window where that's actually going to be effective feedback. We actually have to look at things and sometimes have to zoom way out and realize that like, yeah, their perception of how threatening that environment is, is what's going to put major limits on how well we can interpret uh, that performance test and what what it's actually giving us an indicator for like some of the stuff is like it, it can basically be considered a, a foreign language to to some of these kids and how how the hell would they be able to represent that well if, if they, they haven't developed that vocabulary do you think sometimes people when they use kind of technology as an example something like a force plate do you think sometimes people look at it as too definite and final rather than actually the tool that signposts you to what you do next yes 100 percent um like it, it basically can come out like um you can 100 percent generate bad data like one one example that i've used that's far enough removed and and, and i can maintain some confident confidentiality with is that uh for one nba team that i tested their sixth best jumper on their roster was in the dunk contest the year before so i'm like when you're interpreting this test and when i'm speaking with that staff after that testing has been performed and i'm like this is this is bad data, right? Like, and it's 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 certainly an indicator of where that athlete is, whether it's psychological or physiological, whatever it is. But in that case, you cannot provide adequate support for an athlete who's not willing to give you an adequate effort. Um, so, in that case, like, yeah, hey, we can look at that performance test and say, oh, well, we should work on these characteristics. We can work on all these characteristics. But if that athlete's not willing to give us a hundred percent of of what they're truly capable of because they can't or they won't like we have to be able to interpret that in the right way right like in in that in that case like 
it's predominantly, it was a tendinopathy issue, right? Like the athletes are savage when they go on the basketball court, especially in front of millions of people, and they're willing to, to give that effort. But when they come into the weight room or into the rehab environment, all of a sudden it becomes this, like this, like I described before, this zoo tiger phenomenon where they're really holding back those characteristics, which is going to limit the degree. Like when, when they represent less of an asymmetry because they demanded less of an output from themselves, that's actually... Uh, a, a huge red flag that we're not getting some of that in a way that we know is a real thing for what their performance uh, is, uh, what the cost of it is on those joints. Like if it's, if it is like a right knee issue, right? Like, which uh, we, there were, there were several case studies that I was a part of that, that, that showed just how, when we can zoom in on those characteristics effectively, you can, you can change those scenarios and in, in, in a really short timeline, but you have to have the right amount of awareness of what the limitations are specific to your environment. And that can be really challenging. It's, it's, it's what drives what I've described recently as, as a vigilance of saying that if, if you're going to do a good job, there's going to be so many challenges on so many levels that like you'd better be learning constantly as a practitioner. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself in a really specific and narrow skill set that may not translate as well in other environments. And just to segue slightly, we had um, Chris Toombs on recently discussing uh, velocity-based training, not too far apart from what we're talking about. Um, I know you've actually interestingly published a case study where you used yourself as the guinea pig um, using VBT to auto-regulate a daily squatting program. Um, I thought that was pretty interesting. Could you just uh, tell us about what you did and kind of what you found from that? Yeah, it was bananas. So I did a, a case study and... Uh, Dr. Dan Baker uh, from the ADA would like I communicated with him via Skype and was learning like, like I, I've had, had a Tendo probably since 2008. So not certainly not the first one to have a Tendo, but pretty early relative to now. Um, and I'd used it for years just kind of like uh, monitoring different characteristics and not not always doing necessarily a good job of it. But I think building an awareness around what the, that tool's capabilities were. So I did this squatting every day project, which was at the end of my weightlifting career. I competed in Olympic weightlifting for eight years and kind of it all came to a head where I, I had my last competition. I was trying to train to qualify for national championships, ended up coming short by nine pounds, which which was terrible. But I wanted to kind of transition and, and chase uh, chase a squatting goal because in that whole time, while, yeah, hey, you're trying to train the squat as hard as you can, you're also coming into it with relatively limited capabilities because a lot of times you're just gassed from all the pulls and all the snatching and all the clean and jerks that you're doing. So that's something that is, I think is a fair amount of insight into just how strong and fit weightlifters could be is just like, well, yeah, they squat for whatever limit those loads are for however strong or however not strong they are. You have to think it's relative to the fitness that they're developing in those other tasks. Nevertheless, like I had never squatted 400 pounds. So I was like, well, it'd be nice to be able to do that. Uh, so I, I basically went and I also was, was I'd finished reading this book called Squat Every Day by Matt Perryman. And it was a really interesting take on essentially on like, yeah, auto regulation and, and not with the velocity based training influence, but just on how our bodies would adapt in that process to to a specific stressor and how that this this could actually be interpreted as being OK from our body's physiology in that your body will, will have a natural regulatory process in the absence of any, I think anybody knowing any better, uh, that when you'd go hard at weights every day, 
your body's going, your mind's going to place a limit. Your body's going to place a limit on how hard that can actually be. Certainly not always advisable, but uh, in this case, it was a fun project. So I basically lined up where for that January of the year, I'm losing sight of where it was. It might have been 2015, 2016, uh, that I plan to squat every day. I squat to a one arm RM every day with the goal of being 0.3 meters per second, which is interpreted uh, pretty consistently as being a good squat RM on uh, measuring uh, average meters per second. And then uh, depending on what the, the squat variation I would use, I used, I think, maybe eight different squat variations that month, whether it be like a front squat, back squat, with or without a belt, as well as a safety squat bar, like a box squat, and then a safety squat bar, a free squat. There might be another squat variation. There's It's, it's funny how many variations you could actually create, but I think I used either six or eight different variations. Oh, yeah, in a pause condition and not paused that would be the other two, I think. Uh, yeah, and I, I, in varying that, and then I just pretty quickly came into it. I had several colleagues who, who, who were just like, oh, how do you feel? How do you feel? And I was like, you know, some days I felt pretty bad, and I'd start squatting, and I feel I squatted better than I thought I would. And other days I thought I was going to really blow it up, and I didn't do as well as, as I thought I would. So it was really different, and I, like, I, I felt like the velocity piece was important because – it gave me a chance to be a little bit more objective uh, with, with the approach. And then with the squat workouts, it was generally, I, I, I basically did either singles, doubles, or triples. So I used that to, to, to regulate volumes that I wasn't, that there wasn't going to be like a soreness or like a uh, too much of a fatigue effect. It was pretty much centered on fitness uh, from, you know, loads from like, you know, 70 to, to 90% uh, across those different variations. And yeah, I just did my best to manage fitness and fatigue in that way with really specific stressors. And, and it, it went really well. I ended up squatting 400 on the last day, which is 182 kilograms for international people. And, uh, and it was a lot of progress from the beginning of the month. It was 55 pounds up from my first back squat attempt, which was in like day four, day five, which was like, I think I did 345 pounds, whatever that is, 100, 145, 146-ish kilos. Um, so it, it, it jumped quite a bit and it, it's interesting. Like I, I've had that conversation with actually our, uh, our cross country team this year about there being essentially two camps in running populations, right? There's like the Western kind of mentality of like, Hey, you've got your, your maximum speed or in your distance. And then we kind of pace around that a little bit slower. Some days a little bit faster where in Africa, where the world champions are consistently born, like, they don't do that. They find a world champion. They run as fast as they can every day and try to keep up with that world champion. And when they can't, they just jog the rest of the workout, right? Like, so I, th I think there's room in that in that gap between those two conditions to be a little more sensible about it. But a lot of times, the training timelines afforded to us, as well as the performance target in mind, will necessitate us being a little more aggressive than would otherwise be considered to be okay. Like I think that we've seen that in pro sport environments as well, where uh, if you can find a way to insert some of these stressors in a really short period of time, depending on what the context is, that there, there could be a reason of like that actually representing competition in its most excellent form, where alternatively you're being, you could be too conservative, whether that's in rehab or whether that's in, in, in physical preparation. Yeah. So you, you're, you're using the tool to decide when is the absolute best time to push and when is the red flag moment not to push. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and I like I for for a lot of people I think it's it's 
an extra piece of input where, you know, like uh, I, I think this thing just classically turns into uh, a false dichotomy of people being like, oh, I have that in conversation every day. And I'm like, well, if you have 50 athletes that you're coaching, which is pretty commonly like our environment here at Trinity, can you can you multiply that conversation 50 times? I know I can't. So it's like in, in that case, if you're building a case around each athlete in your environment, which is, I think, what we should be tasked with, then you have to find a way to increase the amount of input that you're receiving, but also find a way as you're increasing that input that you have a way to, to provide effective analysis to, to truly add quality to the discourse. I don't know whether you did this when you uh, when you use the tool for yourself in your squat program or whether you do this with athletes. When you're using velocity training, do you, are you quite strict on uh, where you allow people to kind of apply the effort? As in, you don't want somebody to kind of grind up the reps slow and then in the last few inches just slam their hips through to get a faster time. Um, do you kind of try and standardize that or monitor that? Yeah, but... I'll, I'll tell you from experience, like it's it's the same thing, whether it's on like cleans or snatches or whether it's on the tendo, the second they get, they realize they get that velocity advantage with that. You, you're, it's, it's an uphill fight from there. If they realize that there's an advantage in doing that. So for me, like we have, we have actually 14 tendos, one for each rack for Trinity and we've not introduced them yet where I just started year three and I'm, I'm finally feeling like we have athletes who have enough sense in terms of like how we relate RMs to RPE, uh, where RPE was really the first step in giving our athletes some autonomy, but also trying to get them to think critically of around what their effort is. And then me using language to constrain that of saying that, okay, it's not just RPE, it's also RPE relative to the effort that I want uh, from a mechanical uh, orientation standpoint, meaning if it's a leg action, we want to be, whether it's like a, a hex bar deadlift, deadlift, or squat pattern or lunge pattern, we want to actively engage that pushing the floor away phenomenon, right? Uh, if they're not doing that and it turns into more of a grinding rep, and I've done that in the absence of a velocity condition, then I know like we're not ready to, for it because they, they, they haven't taken that context seriously yet. They're still willing to lift uh, heavier weight, not as well, and not with with respect to like what our goals as a program are which is to provide maximum value at a minimum cost that's really interesting i think that's um some wisdom i've rarely heard about you know people buy the systems they've got the systems they can collect the data so they want to collect it rather than you know is the athlete even going to give me good information from this yet are they at that stage yet yeah it's it's uh so I, I actually, like I said it earlier, is like with respect to like the character we're trying to develop in our program, like I, I, I tell people it's something that I've been openly critical of the field in, in saying that I think from a monitoring standpoint, most of the time we start with athletes feelings at the center and then that drives the behavior. And sometimes like they know that once they gave us that piece of insight, it's going to limit what happens after the fact. Not always the case. Certainly, I think that there's environments where that process can line up a little bit more tightly. But in general, we start with feelings first. That drives the, the way that our athletes behave. And that becomes their character as an athlete. And, and our character as a program is an extension of that. I tell people all the time that, like, we have to start with character first. That drives the behavior in our whatever the training environment is. And then the feelings we get on the back end of that are way more powerful than starting with that feelings orientation. Uh, 
So we have specific things that we've done. Like I have a competitive excellence mountain that has different characteristics that we're trying to develop. And I started out in largely mirroring John Wooden's pyramid of success as having the cornerstones being work ethic and enthusiasm. But I've, I've since readjusted it to where my, my cornerstones are now enthusiasm. Uh, and the other cornerstone is, is awareness, which is, which is deemed the intentional focusing of awareness. Uh, uh, so that, that being critical because athletes with a good work ethic and enthusiasm, you could work yourself right into the ground, but that doesn't mean that you're being truly intentional and, and having an openness to the learning and growth that needs to happen in order to do, to do that in the best possible way. There's athletes that will train themselves. I, I know Olympians that always, that will say like, Hey, I'd rather overtrain and undertrain. You know, the fact that they're that far into their career and they still believe that that's a thing uh, that you can do that. Like that, that, that's that, Hey, you know, I'd rather do a little bit too much than, than I'm like, no, I'm like, like even that lack of clarity on a concept like that, I think is giving us insight into what, 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 uh, an athlete's dominant traits and, and the way that they're going to perform and train is going to be. So you really harness kind of af- developing athlete maturity before you actually go to the, um, you know, the bells and whistles and the testing procedures that everybody wants to dive into. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think a lot of people would be surprised uh, w- when you talk to me. I, I, I'm, I've, I've pretty much consistently been saying the same thing, but I think people sometimes hear what they want to hear. Uh, so I, 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 I'm almost always critical of like, hey, are we using our eyes to to do more with less? You know, like, and then can we build on that with data? Of course, I, I'm, I'm, I, I believe in both of those things. Um, so I, I'm actually. So to be to be fair, I've just started this, but I I, I felt like some of that could be a little bit impractical, kind of what I've described in terms of that. You don't have enough data to really assess like you're basically turning everything to be in conversation form. So I'm working with one of the professors uh, here at our university to develop a questionnaire as part of our intake that will do a better job of capturing what someone's level of awareness is, like whether they have. enough of a knowledge base where these these kinds of conversations will be truly fruitful or whether or not that that we're, we're going to be starting from an absolute blank slate, you know, which is what is often the case for us. But so the questionnaires in that way, I think, is that not planning to use something like that every week, but use that on the front end along with collecting like critical injury and, and, and training history information, but also figuring out like uh, inserting a grit scale into that, which is not a great indicator because everybody thinks that they have grit uh, in general. Uh, but finding other ways to, to add to that narrative early on. And then we, we do like I like I do a bit of a, a debrief with our athletes where we talk about these characteristics pretty much on, on a, a weekly or biweekly basis where I'm doing some sort of review of saying saying how how we're building this thing and then reflecting like, are we good at this? Right. Are you guys good at at having that kind of autonomy in this environment at, at having that kind of awareness so when you collect you, you know you collect the baseline information about the the athlete and the kind of person and their belief systems and their you know their their training age and maturity how often you know do you recommend if people go down that line that they check in with the athlete to kind of see how they develop in those aspects not just the the gym metrics that give you numbers uh i mean i i think it's just I think it's a like, like I can't imagine not like for me, I can't imagine 
when I like when I described the vigilance process before, I can't imagine not just being on top of it all the time. Because for me, the numbers that I face in a routine like training environment, I, I have to be able to make them feel important, and I have to be able to engage them in important issues every time that we're training, which can make make the dialogue that I have really enriched, or sometimes it can make it seem a little bit too kind of a, a pace setting approach, which I've become more aware of, like that I, I definitely have that characteristic uh, in, in communication with Mike Boyle in the past. Like I, I basically told him, I said, yeah, I said, I, I'd have people say, hey, I don't know if it's a great idea when I was private. And I'd imagine I would have this effect to some degree in the collegiate environment as well. I don't know if it's a great idea if you train with Daniel. He's extremely demanding and as such, like, I don't think you have the work ethic to be able to do what, what he'll need you to do or what he'll ask for you to do. And so he'll probably just fire you anyway, which is not something that I've ever done. So it's like the idea that people would take what I've done in the past and and I think to uh, to communicate and speak to that just based on it, it, it kind of told me that I was biased and in, in not in a negative way, but in, in a way that a lot of people take as being unrealistic. So. I've had to work on my own awareness to make sure that I have the ability to make people feel that they're important to me and that that's a first step. So it's a lot of like the soft talk as a coach and then finding ways to inject and, and try to find how to get to important issues, not necessarily for me all the time, but figure out how to solve what their challenges are as, as student athletes in this case and, and let them know that like, to me, I think it's all connected. So I think that, uh, that yeah, hey, in the end, it, it's it's it ends up being important for me because it was important to them. But I know that from from our athletic, our competition orientation, that I've got them to treat this as being just as important, right? Uh, so that's something that there's a, a practitioner named Michael Lepp, who I actually like. I only know of him indirectly, like, and then social media, etc. But Tracy Fober was telling me at one point she's a she's a phys physical therapist who's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, but she was telling me, or I read it maybe in one of her blogs, I'm trying to remember, we've communicated in, in multiple ways over the years, but, uh, that they refused to see, he runs a, a program for, for, I think it's uh, Joe Gibbs racing. He, he, uh, they refused to spend money on any signage or on anything that didn't help them go faster as a program, which I love as a philosophy. Uh, I absolutely think it's brilliant, but then it made me really critique like, well, does a good sign help us go faster if it's a, a way of engaging an athlete in, in increased effort, right? Increased in like finding ways. And then it, it's, it's for, for me, I just think it's about scale is being like, Hey, some things are going to give you bigger returns. Like a direct conversation around performance oriented problems is definitely the fastest way to roam, but not everybody's ready for that conversation. So it's, 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 like I said, the vigilance piece of it is a very real thing for me. And then figuring out that that tells me how aligned that I can be on my message or how zoomed out I need to be as well. Yeah, it sounds like I think like I've probably seen this myself, but places can try and replicate other environments or try and make their program look like another program rather than just drilling down holistically into what is the absolute best thing for them at that current moment, not next but where are they at the moment and what's the next best step? 100%. Like what a great way of putting it, next best step. Um, that, that's exactly what it is. It's just like, so I, I've had athletes who it's pretty much like I always call it hammer nail, right? It's just like, hey, <laughs> that's it. We, we can do that. So in that, in that way, there's another false dichotomy. It's called a 
transformational versus transactional coaching. I think in general, yeah, we all need to be transformational in our orientation, but sometimes we need to be very transactional in that there are athletes who we, we don't need to know everything about each other. And it doesn't have to all be about heart all the time. There are some athletes who it's just about going faster, you know, like, uh, I forget the name of the author. Is it Steve Ingham, I think, is a, a UK practitioner, wrote How to Support a Champion? Yeah. He talks about a famous rower who was a multiple-time multiple, uh, multiple time Olympian at the time, him first meeting him and the, the, that athlete asking him, oh, you're going to make me go faster. And him realizing, hey, all of a sudden the pressure's on. Like this guy sounds like he's 100% competition orientation. And if that's somebody you run into, yeah, yeah. You could talk to him about, hey, let's let, let me learn about you first. And he might be like, you don't need to know anything about me except that I want to go. I want to be the best in the world. And there are people like that. So I like I think that we have to be flexible in our approach. And like what you said is like that will dictate what our next best step is. I'm really curious, where where do you turn to now to do your development and where it sounds like you kind of you go quite far and wide and probably outside of sport for your development. But how do you how do you pick your resources for your development? Yeah, it's, so it's something that's really central to me right now. So I, I really appreciate your you bringing that up. There's uh, there's actually like I like I've really fallen deeply in love. There's a book called The Rock Warrior's Way uh, that I read recently. I, I actually had dinner with uh, the author recently. I was just very taken with the material. It's the it's the best way I've heard what would classically be be referred to as warriorship uh, articulated in in my reading. Uh, and it's put together a, a, a several concepts for me that, of course, like created like another just another set of questions to be asked. But um, I'm 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 extremely excited about about what I've learned and how that's reshaping my process. But, yeah, it's 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 about growth and learning. And for me, I'll I'll do whatever it takes from a learning standpoint. And a lot of it for me is is I think in the environment that I'm in here, especially is that I've had to create layers outside of direct performance orientation, which is where I tend to, to, to centralize my learning, but in just learning how to, how to connect better with people is that that's, that's, that's what's, that's, what's driven me in the way that, uh, that I've gone. Uh, and so there is, there's a lot of, of, of learning like that. I'm reading a book called the craft of the warrior right now. And a lot of people hear that. And when, when they hear kind of the war orientation and the battle orientation, it can have a negative connotation to it, but if you think of it historically, like warriors were tasked with fighting for what they loved classically, right? Like in general, like a state or a people and overall is just like a way of life in many ways is that it, so it became a process of growth that in order to extend your life and potentially the, the lives of those that you loved, you had to be vigilant in how you attacked and defended those standards. And that led to certain beliefs and ways of living that uh that i'm extremely sensitive to at this point in my life it's funny actually because you know speaking to you today you're incredibly technically minded and um dynamic in how you think and we've, i've had a few other guests on it like tim gabbert as an example and i think the thing that kind of makes me laugh is on these episodes um it seems to come down to people values beliefs and reasons um as being the overarching topics rather than the assumption that you see a certain guest and you think, oh, this is going to be pure science. And it always comes down to that underpinning stuff before it. So I think it's quite, it's, it's always refreshing to hear. Yeah, I agree. I think when people, when we reduce it to being just performance oriented, I think, I mean, for me, especially like I have mentors that just 
just blow me away. You know, every time that I learn from them and there's times where, like I, I've said this specifically, doc, Dr. Sophia Nymphius is a mentor, someone who I did my master's uh, in uh, from Edith Cowan underneath. Uh, and she had a tremendous impact into me. Like I came into that having coached and been a facility owner and having experiences and learning from a lot of different people and just blew my socks off with how, what she knew and how passionate she was about it. And it just reinforces like, the kind of practitioner I want to be in many ways, like all I'm trying to do is model those characteristics. And I always tell people like, Hey, um, I heard a quote once that said, uh, you take what your mentors give you and you take it further. And so for me, it was always like, Hey, well, from, from how doc soap is oriented, like there's no taking it further. Like she's the best in the world in what she does. So I just like, it's been described. It's described in, uh, in the warriorship literature as a path with heart. Right. So if you're on this path, like, it has to be something that your heart comes through it. And if that's so, then it, 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 there's a there's a uh, there's a uh, uh, trying to think of how to it, it, it's, it's very genuine in how the approach comes through. And I think that that despite the fact that, like, I might go three different directions in answering a question, two of which might have nothing to do with answering the original question, but it somehow relates. Right. And like and I've learned to stop apologizing for who I am, but just continue to find ways to add focus to make sure that it's not just about getting into your own head and getting excited about what you've learned and, and sharing and coaching, but also about getting into other people's heads and, and figuring out what it takes to influence them to have like a higher expectation about what they can contribute to and achieve as a program, as an athlete, as a human, like on, on every layer, you know? Yeah, I love that. You've been incredibly um, eye-opening and transparent, and um, I think we're probably on the clock there for the episode. Um, thanks so much for coming on. Just for the for the listeners that want to track your activity and uh, see more of your content or hear more about you, where can people follow you, or where's the best place for them to track you, track your activities? Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm on Instagram as Daniel Martinez MSCSCS, which is kind of a long-winded. Some of the athletes that, that I have are always like, "What does that mean?" It's like blah, 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 like at the end, uh, but they don't know what MSCSCS means. But I think uh, I, I, I've heard Instagram referred to as uh, as digital scrapbooking, which is definitely a me thing. Like I like reflecting on like past experiences and people and and uh, and things that I've learned. So that's I'm, I'm pretty active on Instagram. I'm also on on uh, Twitter as at Entheos Athletic, which is E-N-T-H-E-O-S. It's where the word enthusiasm comes from. It's it's Greek for the God within. Uh, but Entheos Athletic, that was my previous business was Entheos Athletics. So uh, and relatively, you know, modest Facebook uh, presence, principally centered around my kids who I love deeply. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. And um, I think people would have got a lot out of that. Yeah, I appreciate that, Andy. I'd like to say a big thanks to Daniel for coming on the show today and sharing so much technical information complemented by both his experience and also his philosophies. Don't forget to hit subscribe to the Informed Performance Podcast to provide your support and ensure that you don't miss upcoming episodes. Next week, I'll be speaking to Dr. Chris Dodson, an orthopedic and board-certified sports medicine surgeon who is also the head team physician for the Philadelphia 76ers and the head orthopedic surgeon for the Philadelphia Eagles. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Informed Performance Podcast.